0: Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. I'm very excited to announce that this is the first of many episodes called In the C-Suite. Yes, I have interviewed a lot of C-Suite executives in the past 37 episodes, However, these interviews tend to be focused on the companies and their technologies and how they related to helping out during the pandemic. While we cover some of those same issues with these upcoming episodes, we also explore what it takes to be a C-suite leader, what has shaped and influenced them, and how they have responded to these extraordinary times during the pandemic. Do you know what the mother-daughter-sister-grandmother test is? Today, Trevor McGaugh, CCO at Trisalis Life Sciences, will answer that question. It has to do with values. Trevor joins us to talk about this groundbreaking technology, the steps in his career to the C-suite, career advice, why he chose the medical device industry, challenges, and his leadership response during the pandemic. Trevor is a member of the MedTech Leaders community. By the way, I'm the host of the MedTech Leaders community. You can learn more about this non-LinkedIn community at medtechleaders.net. This is where a lot of the videocasts reside. I do have a YouTube channel you can find under Medical Device Success And I will be making some of the older, yet still applicable, videocasts public on that YouTube channel soon. If you are interested in the MedTech Leaders community, there is a 30-day free trial. Again, more information at medtechleaders.net. All right, let's get together with Trevor for a very interesting conversation. Trevor, it's really terrific to have you on the program today, and thank you so much for being the first in this series that I'm calling In the C-Suite, because I think it's really important. And um, But again, thanks so much for being here today.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. Honored.
0: Well, you know, what's interesting is And, um, you know, we do have this attendee who I'll probably also interview because he's a CEO, but as I've started to set these up and started to talk about, uh, people in the C-suite and start talking to them, what's really fascinating is what a wide variety of circumstances everybody is in. And you're in a really interesting circumstance and you have a really interesting history, and so what I'd like to start off with, if you don't mind, is just give us a brief description of Trisalis Life Sciences and your
1: role there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Trisalis is a company that uh, started off as a medical device company, developing catheters for oncology uh, procedures. And it's evolved in the last couple of years since 2018 to really become much more than that. And uh, we're in the midst of developing a smart valve platform which is a device approach to modulate the pressure around a tumor, and then use that modulation and use the delivery mechanism to deliver therapeutics to the tumor, to treat the tumor. Today, we deal with conventional um, therapeutics. There's uh, radioembolics, chemoembolics, uh, but we really see that as a springboard to what we're gonna be doing in the future, which is immuno-oncology. So um, think of it as a way to kind of deliver therapies very specific, very locally. We call it local regional. And it gets over a lot of the side effects and increases the benefit versus what's traditionally delivered systemically. So IV bag, needle, um, we really go right to the tumor and deliver the therapy there. Uh, my role as chief commercial officer, I have responsibility for all the sales and marketing, the revenue focus on the device business. And we have we have another team that's focused on the immuno-oncology uh, therapeutic business, uh, which we licensed and purchased last uh, late summer last year.
0: Okay. That's no, great. And later in the program, I do want to come back to the technology because there's some very fascinating aspects to it. But Absolutely. for our listeners, what i like to do is start a little bit with, with your career, because I think it's always interesting. How does somebody get to the C-suite and, and what motivates them to get there? And I noticed like in your background, you went right from engineering school, am I correct? Mm-hmm. And you went right into um, Boston Consulting Group. Yep. So is this something that was in your DNA? I mean, how did you know you're going to go from engineering into Boston Consulting Group? Not only consulting, but that's sort of, that's almost like a segue into uh, new ventures and so on.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a good question. So um, it really comes down to, I went into engineering because I was good at math and science and didn't know what else to do. And I thought, you know, engineering looks about as good as anything else. So that's kind of how I landed in engineering. I was not, I didn't go in. Wanting to be an engineer. I wasn't kind of one of those hardwired people. But you know what really struck me was I looked around my class and I saw people who like did engineering in their spare time. You know, these these were guys and 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 women in the weekends who were like building computers and doing this stuff. They loved it. They had a passion for it that I didn't. I got I got good grades. Like I was certainly on par with them academically, but I wasn't wired for it. And that kind of opened my eyes to say, you know, I'm not going to be the best engineer in the room. That's clear. I mean, these people live and breathe it and think it. So I, I, I really looked to what else I wanted to do. And I interviewed with the investment banks in New York. I interviewed with the consulting companies. I kind of went broad and wide as an exploration. And I fell in love with the management consulting model. You know, it puts you in a room with a bunch of smart people. You got to go experience a whole lot of different um, industries really quickly. And, and I got sucked in. And, and I love the culture of Boston Consulting Group. And that that's what really took me there. Um, I had a real keen interest in healthcare right out of engineering, right out of undergrad. I took all the all the uh, pre-med classes, actually applied to med school and decided not to go. So I had this destiny to, or I had this desire to go into healthcare, but it took me a while for that kind of blurry vision to start to become clear. So I started in Boston Consulting Group. Then it was the dot-com day. You could do no wrong if you knew electrical computer engineering. So then I went into software um, and started a software company. So I was kind of the the early part of my career. Uh, but it became very evident quickly that I wanted to get into healthcare. I wasn't equipped to do it as, as I, w- uh, with my existing skill set, And that's why I went back to do my uh, MBA. And I, I always describe as kind of hitting the reset button. I went into MBA, not knowing what I want to do, but I knew I want to come out the other end in healthcare.
0: But you still had a great foundation, Boston Consulting Group, starting your own business, engineering, you know, my wife, uh, is a retired ER doctor, but she was an engineer before she Uh, went to med school. Yeah. My dad was an engineer. So I'm the son of an engineer, which is really dangerous, (laughs) Um, but it was great in helping me understand technologies because he's one of those guys where you're in the basement and you'd say, dad, what's this and how does it work? And he'd say, well, how do you think it works?
1: Yeah.
0: You know, before you know it, you're in this whole cycle of, you know, figuring things out. So now I can, I I get it. I understand that. And um, so you, you went, you hit the reset, went to Harvard for their program. what was what specifically was that program again?
1: Uh, general MBA so uh-huh. at, at Harvard, the MBA class is all general. first year it's, you take everything it, or everybody takes the same thing so it's it's very general.
0: And then to stick your feet into the medical business, you went to work for Medtronic.
1: I did. Yeah, I, I came out, and this is funny because I earlier said I wasn't an engineer, but when I looked at cross healthcare, you know, you look at insurance companies, um, providers, biotech, and, you know, you look across everything, and the only thing I innately understood was medtech. You know, you could hold it, you could touch it, you could bend it, twist it, push it, you know, and so it, I guess it was partly I was drawn to because medtech – um, went back to some of that engineering roots and I really liked it. And there were other things. I liked the timeframes. Like some of the pharma frames scared me back in the day. Oh yeah. 14, one in 10,000 drugs make it. And it takes 17 years. I was like, yeah, life's too short. I, I don't want to start off there. And then the other elements had a lot of bureaucracy, which I was not necessarily enamored with either having worked with some of these big companies at BCG. So I kind of fell into med tech and I knew through kind of reaching out that if you want to be in med tech, one of the best paths to go is to Medtronic. And I really looked at it as kind of, I I often described it to friends as Medtronic University. Like I went there and I was a sponge. Like I just absorbed everything uh, at Medtronic. And it was, I mean, it was phenomenal place to start off. I mean, the other ones would be too: Boston Scientific, J&J, all of those Abbott the, I'm sure they're all great, but I, I fell in love with Medtronic. I couldn't imagine a better kind of corporate steward and place to, to start off a career. And it, it has played out. I mean, as I look back and reflect 20 years ago, how much that Medtronic um, knowledge, but also community, I often, I I always think it's fine. If I'm reaching out to somebody, I often describe it as Medtronic refugee wants to connect. I mean, it really does have that strong connection that that's on par with my Harvard connection. I, I, I'm a big fan of that Medtronic uh, experience. So the question around leadership and how do you get to the C-suite? I think if you don't come from the industry, if you're not a doctor or something, I think it's really going to those big companies uh, is, is good. You learn how things are done well. They do a lot of things, right. And, uh, Kind of getting that imprinted early on is, it for me, and I've seen it among my peers as mission critical. Now, if I look across my peers today that are in the C-suite, I almost every single one of them had a path through one of the big med tech companies.
0: Yeah, I started with American Hospital Supply, but a really small division. Right. Uh, that was like only $30 million in this $3 billion company. So you got like the best of both worlds. But I, I'd like to put in a big exclamation point on what you just said from a career standpoint to listeners. I frequently hear young people today say, well, when I get out of school, I'd like to find a, a small company to work for and help them build up and do this and do that. And I always say, Go get a job with a real big company. Prove that you can survive there. Prove that you can get promoted there. First of all, just getting recruited is proof of something because they typically have pretty you know, um, rigorous recruiting standards. But go work for a company like that and learn exactly what you learned, Trevor, because they got great programs. They've got great training. They set great examples, great processes and systems that you learn. I agree with you 100%.
1: And to build on that, one of the things I tell people when I'm giving the same kind of advice to folks is go to a big company and get as close to the customer as you can. These are huge companies. You can be five or six degrees away from a customer. Even if you want to be in HR, finance, IT, you know, even if you want to be in one of those uh, different functional areas, I recommend everybody go get as close to the customer as possible. I, in hindsight, I would have loved to take a field sales job. I mean, I think that's ultimately... Like at the end of the day, the rubber hits the road when you put a device in the hand of hands of a clinician and they treat a patient. And honestly, everything else trickles down from that. And I think you see a lot of people miss that. And I got kind of close to it. I would have loved to have been even closer. But that's something I often, I often um, counsel people to is get as close to that final customer, patient, physician as you can because it, it just serves you so well no matter where you end up in the, in the rest of the industry, looking back to that is, is instrumental and and fundamental in terms of your understanding of the industry.
0: Right. So your point is like, if you had a chance to be in sales for at least a period of time, you are directly facing the customer. Yeah. Um, And so to do that within the industry you want to be in is great. I agree with you. I mean, you are a salesperson because you just look at your career. You've been selling your ideas and your concepts and businesses your entire career. So you're a salesperson. Yeah. There's no <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but the point is, in the area that you're specializing, get close to the customer because so much you can learn. I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So then, when it comes to if we uh, if we talk about again getting into the C suite, you know what part of your personality skills and or experience, do you think sort of add up to being in the C-suite because being like being a salesperson, you, you have pressure on you, you've got quotas to hit, you've got expectations and so on and so forth, but you're sort of sitting there and you're expecting the company to deliver the support that you need, but we're in the C-suite, you're sort of up there all alone. So what do you think it takes to be there?
1: Um, Well, one, it's a desire to have the job. I mean, it's it's kind of the equivalent of a company of having a strategy and a vision. So, I mean, you find people who end up there by mistake, not by mistake, that's the wrong term. They end up there without the deliberate focus to be there. You know, you get promoted, you get promoted, and suddenly one day you're in the C-suite and you're like, oh, this isn't necessarily what I want to do. So I think the most important thing is understand their role and want to do it. And I would argue a meaningful number of people who are in this role shouldn't be. Uh, because they don't want to do it. They don't like the stress. They don't like the weights. They don't like the, you know, you don't get your hands dirty every day. Like, I think there's a lot of people. So really know what it is and, and make sure you want it. Like, it's kind of that thing, make sure you don't wish for something you don't want, right? I think that that's a big, big part of it. And I've always wanted this. Like, I really like the role. One of the things I think about my life is leverage. And, you know, one of the reasons I didn't become a doctor is I didn't want to treat patient by patient by patient I want to treat thousands and tens of thousands and millions of patients. And so the, one of the things that drives me to, this, to the C-suite is that leverage, your ability to leverage impact across your team and across a, a, a wide array. So I think that's kind of philosophically one of the things you have to understand. And then it's just lining up the functional skills. I, I think you you have to become... you you, you never want to become the master of anything, but you want to become competent in a lot of different things. So you have to be able to know how to read a a balance sheet. You have to know how to look at an engineering drawing. You have to look, and this is across all the C's, like CFO, COO, CEO, like these apply to all of them. You have to develop kind of competency in a lot of those key areas, but most importantly, leadership. I mean, you have to rally um, a team and motivate people to to get there. Um, I wouldn't say. I mean, I think I knew I wanted to be there. I didn't know the journey, so it wasn't a deliberate like do step one, then step two, then step three. I think it was more building the foundation, making sure I got those competencies, and really knowing that ultimately I wanted to to put them into into um, action as a C level. And then the other thing is confidence. If you know you want to be there, if you've got the core competencies, it's a belief that you can do it. And I will tell you it's never like what you expected. And if you don't believe you can do it, it doesn't matter how good you are at those first two, you're going to flounder. So I think, I think confidence is a big component of it. You have to, you have to, it sounds cliche, but you kind of have to believe in yourself and believe that you'll be good in that role.
0: But then the confidence is also um, a result of everything you've done in the past to some degree, but then there's this extra edge that you have to have as an individual.
1: Right. Yeah. 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 I think, I think you have to be able to um, you have to be able to compartmentalize the job. Um, I mean, it, the the stress and the burden of having anybody in the C-suite. I mean, it can sink you personally. And you have to be able to compartmentalize things like um, you know, worry about the things you control. Don't worry about the things you can't. Like some of that kind of ability to deal with the stresses and 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 focus and 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 really make a, a difference in the areas you can is that is another another key component of it. And, and that's where I think you get that edge. I think it's people who who can do that well um, are well suited for that for the C-suite.
0: And this isn't your first C-suite job. <clears throat> You've had it several. But if we if you look at this or, and even look at past roles and with other organizations, is there any like particular challenge that you had to overcome? that was very representative of being in the C-suite and having to use that leverage and use that leadership that you could talk to?
1: Yeah. I'll think back to my days when I was at a company called Blueprint Clinical. We had designed, we were, we were as close to a garage startup as you can imagine, you know, just coders sitting on chairs we picked up at the, at the dump kind of thing. (laughs) Um, We, one of the challenges that I came to appreciate was the challenge of, selling into big organizations in healthcare. So I I, I was singing the praises of healthcare earlier in the accolades. There's a darker side of healthcare too, which is it's bureaucratic and slow and risk averse in a lot of cases. And um, it can get really frustrating as a small company where you've got a product that you believe makes a difference. You've got external validation that it's working and you're hitting this kind of organizational um, inertia that's preventing it from getting out there. And you know, I always I literally remind myself every day about the patient. I think about it as I'm like, you know, are we are we doing good by the patient? And if we are, kind of everything else, you know, you should make our decisions around that. There are obviously other things that factor into it. But um, one of the challenges I had was dealing with that bureaucracy and just kind of how do you sell into. We were selling into big pharma, kind of top ten pharma companies, and I had come from the med tech world and I knew that area. But um, the challenge I had was just. I describe it as at one point I must've had a flat head. The front of my head must've been flat from banging against the wall. And um, I never, uh, the challenge was, is I wasn't prepared for it. Well, I didn't know it was going to happen. I wasn't prepared for it. And by the time I realized how big the mountain, the hill was to climb, I wasn't equipped to do it. And so we kind of ended up in a spot where um, we had a success. The company was a success, but it could have been a much bigger success and I just under-resourced and underappreciated how hard it was to sell into it. And it was on me. It was on me and my and my partner to know that, and we didn't know that adequately enough. And, and I think it, you know, if I if I reflect back, as one of my frustrations was, is we should have hired more people, raised more money, done all of those things to kind of buy ourselves more time to to go to go into the pharma world with it, selling into pharma, knowing clear what it should have been or what it could have been and what it should have been.
0: You know, but even the hospital systems can be real bureaucratic messes to get into. Um, and I was just—I was talking to another CEO earlier this week that I'm—that we're we're getting set up for a similar interview, part of the C-suite series. And she was saying that she didn't realize the kind of inertia that there is in the hospital ecosystem and how hard it is to break into that. Um, break through that inertia to bring a new concept to bear and to get people to accept it. You know, there's so many other things people are dealing with, and it's just hard to change habits. So you're right; it's um, you do need to make sure you've got runway to take off on for sure.
1: Yeah, and in our case, our our customers were looking for some. It was very much a CYA environment. They were looking for some sort of external validation from the FDA or another big competitor. No one wanted to move first. Everybody thought being different means my job's on the line. If I'm wrong, I don't get fired for status quo. I guess that was kind of the, the feeling I ran into. And I wasn't used to that. I was used to people thriving by innovating and finding new ways to do things. And in this customer, this particular segment, it took it took me a long time to realize that you were you were rewarded for steady state stasis not changing and that you the risk was really in changing and that was again that was kind of an insight if i think back of the challenge that i had to overcome and you know no more no better now that would that would have been one of them
0: okay so here we are it's uh 2020 and you're you know early mid-year you're at a totally different job, you're not at Trisalis yet, probably hadn't even seen Trisalis on the horizon yet, and then suddenly they're there and they're recruiting you. What motivated you to join Trisalis? Because you were happy at the other job you had.
1: I was, Absolutely. So for me, the pandemic was, I feel so gracious and lucky that it wasn't a huge driver in my life. I, I was working from home. My wife worked from home. We were kind of lucky that we were not raveled by COVID the same way a lot of other people were. So I wasn't retrenched and kind of thinking about um, the pandemic as a big external factor. And I i recognize I, I'm extremely lucky, lucky to have been in that camp. So I didn't have this kind of external pressure, so for me it was just regular course of business that I that I that I uh, connected with Trisalis. What really triggered me to join Trisalis was well, was a couple things. One, um, I've always been fascinated with this intersection between device and pharma. I I I maybe couldn't articulate it as well as I can now, but I always knew that pharma lived in this silo and medtech lived in this silo, and they were both equally arrogant and wrong in the fact that they need, that the, the cross-pollination makes sense. And we've you know, we we've seen it, like there was drug eluding stents, there are examples of this, but it's not as pervasive as it should have been. And I always, one, was drawn to it and always thought, you have know, these two amazing approaches, why not put them together? And I love that Trisalis was doing that. I, that's what sucked me in initially. Um, and then our CEO, Mary, she's an unbelievable. She's this inspirational leader. She has this vision that kind of created this intersection. And I hadn't seen that in, in, in the industry in a while. Somebody who came from pharma but had embraced the medtech side. And that was that was what really drew me in. I, I, I really wanted to be part of it. I think there's I mean, it, to me, it's kind of like electric cars. It's not a matter of if it's going to be the future. It's just a matter of how and when and how it unfolds. This the, the intersection between device and pharma is going to be part, and it's going to be a big part of the future. And I wanted to be part of it. I don't know how it's going to unfold. I think we're going to be a meaningful part of it, but I knew I wanted to develop that skill set. And so that was that was a big part of what drew me in.
0: And from the conversations you and I had before, there was a personal element here too.
1: Yes, yes. So I uh, I had a business partner at another company that I had started, actually not MedTech company, um, who uh, was diagnosed with a solid tumor um, on his adrenal gland when he was 39. Uh, his yes. name was Doug Burgoyne, and he uh, he passed away nine months after getting diagnosed. And and Doug was it was such an interesting um, example where Doug was one of the fittest people I knew. Like he was he did everything right. He ate all organic. He was fit. You know he had it all together, and then he got diagnosed, and it it wiped him out so quickly. And so I've I've always been touched by that. And like I said about the intersection between the device and the, phar- and the pharma, I've also always been intrigued with oncology. It was a little bit daunting because I didn't fully understand it um, early on, but I did have that personal motivation. And you know, I've always I, I think of Doug often, thinking, man, if we could have, if he was 10 years later, what I'm working on might have actually made a difference for him. And he left behind, uh, you know, two young boys. I think three and eighteen months, and so it, it was—it's gut wrenching to think that that happened to somebody who it shouldn't have. Um, you know, when you're 89 and you get cancer, you know, we want to treat those patients, no question. Sure. But when you see a 39-year-old father of two young boys, it just—it completely reframed it in my mind. And so that was a, that was a big motivator.
0: Wow. Well, thanks for uh, sharing that with us. But yeah. th- those kinds of things, you know, motivate a lot of us, and a lot of people are in med tech for you know, similar reasons, but you do feel good when you know your products are going to make a difference. And these trisalus life science products, well, the combination, we're going to talk about that uh, uh, here soon, the combination platform, not combination device. Right,
1: right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, so now, okay, you're on board. It's the fall of 2020 and you're on board at trisalus Uh, life sciences, like what are some of the first challenges you face as a chief commercial officer coming on board?
1: Interestingly, I said COVID kind of didn't rattle my personal life. It certainly rattled a a small company trying to do a launch. Um, It was was the exact opposite. I mean, the company had been, they launched the product in February of 2020. Can you imagine a worse time (laughs) to be trying to come out with a brand new product? brand new reimbursement code, brand new sales organization. So as you'd expect, it didn't meet expectations on January 31st, what they thought the year was going to look like didn't play out. And and it wasn't what the hard thing was, it wasn't a fault of the product or the team. It was external circumstances. So I kind of came in, you know, recognizing that the world was different than uh, than than what the expectation was, so there was there were you know there was a it was a heavy lift. There was a lot of work to be done to try and get the product um, back back on track. And you know, with that, COVID came a lot of chaos, partnerships, team, a lot of confusion. So for me. All at the same time, I'm trying to new, learn a new therapeutic area. So I was sitting down hours on YouTube watching immuno-oncology videos, trying to read through you know, research papers on metastatic, livers, metastatic disease, et cetera. So it was kind of a month of, like I said earlier, sponge, like just absorb as much as I can so I can talk credibly and then map out the future really quickly. Like how do we get out of this kind of chaos of COVID and write the ship? And you know, the hospitals had restricted access to sales reps. The value assessment committee processes were, in a lot of cases, ground to a halt. So a lot of it was trying to figure out, just figure out what was going on and then put in, plan, in place a plan to, to fix it. So, you know, the first few months were, were very much reflective and trying to understand and get a sense of what we, what we had in front of us. And then we've been in we've we've been in a building phase ever since we've been we've been building on our team we've been uh, putting in place a lot of new marketing sales programs etc. So it's it, you know certainly has shifted from fall of 2020 to now kind of looking forward and uh, you know tremendous level of excitement we've seen we've seen the effects of COVID probably level off and probably even get better I think the hospitals even though the numbers are still there the hospitals have figured out how to grapple with with COVID and. Um, we're not back to the old world. I'm not sure we ever will get back to the old world, but at least we're in a little bit more of a steady state than we were before.
0: Yeah, the CDC just came out with its um, new quarantine guidance for people that have had been vaccinated, and it's um, it, it's not going to help MedTech because it's uh, you have a window from the second week after your second shot. That's when they consider you vaccinated. That that, that it's effective. For a three month period, if you're exposed to somebody that has um, COVID, uh, during that three month period, you would not have to quarantine. But after that three month period is over, three months from that second week after your second shot, uh, you would have to quarantine again. So I think that kind of guidance is still going to rattle our ability to get in front of doctors, to get into hospitals, and so on and so forth. And um, it's going to be some challenges for some time to come. So tell me, like, can you just generally describe a couple strategies or tactics you use on the marketing and or sales side to try to right the ship and or study the ship in this COVID environment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's there's two that kind of stand out. One is um, in, engaging, the, engaging the physicians uh, from a marketing and sales level kind of one-on-one. So rather than I mean, I'll use the example of conferences, right? You can't put a booth up and be in front of two thousand or five thousand people anymore with a you know a low touch but high you know wide awareness. We've had to shift towards very focused engagement with the customers, and then we're doing it both digitally, you know, traditionally, and in person. So we so we've we've kind of we've gone from shotgun to laser. So that's the first thing. And as part of that, we're really using physicians. Um, as a conduit for that. So, so finding champions, finding KOLs and enabling them, I would argue we're kind of, you know, in a lot of cases tapped out in, ter- in some of the digital. I mean, we're all sitting in front of a computer more than we did before. The physicians are the same way. Like a lot of the face-to-face engagement has been replaced by computer engagement, even in their internal stuff, department meetings, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's all been replaced with Zoom calls so we're 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 treading lightly in terms of how to engage digitally, uh, but it certainly has has become a big part of it. And then for us, another big part of the strategy was you can't, you know, you can't sit by the scrub sink and wait for cases to happen as much as you used to be able to. that that kind of, if you look back in the last 50 years, you know, a significant percentage of of med tech business came from being there, physically being in the room. I mean, you know, we've all walked the halls of hospitals and seen reps like one after another in their, in their scrubs and their fleece vests lined up waiting for cases. That that's changed. I think we have to be much more strategic, not to say we can't, we we need to be there. There needs to be a physical presence, but the the rules have changed so that we need to react and, and adapt to that. So we're, we're looking at new ways of engaging schedulers, engaging physicians, engaging lab staff. That's a little bit less. I want to say more proactive rather than reactive.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's great. So, did that end up requiring a number of like strategic meetings with your team to sort oh, this yeah. stuff out to design new sales processes?
1: About every all of the above. We we've completely we're rewriting the entire sales process, so we're moving. Uh, we've we've restructured how we do some of the distributor agreements. We're we're leaning more heavily on on direct reps. Um, we're looking for folks who kind of have probably deeper experience um, than maybe we would before. We're, we're we're really we've kind of raised the bar in terms of what you know what we want the team to be. It's it's a little bit of a a less is more, right? We'd rather have a really strong rock star sales rep than maybe two or three junior reps that don't have the experience. Um, this new world requires relationships. It requires an understanding of the process. It's, it's hard to learn from the outside looking in. So we're really looking for people who've kind of been in that environment and, and uh, can translate that experience out. Um, the other big thing is with us, with the trans, uh, transitional pass-through payment, the TPT code, it's not that common. I mean, it's, it's a very powerful tool that CMS put in place to bring novel Meaningful technologies forward and remove one of the barriers, which is reimbursement. It's wonderful. It's a great program. It's it's helping patients, but it's not it's not everywhere. Um, and so, kind of the reimbursement part of the story is something that we're telling, and it's not always told to the clinician. It's told to an administrator, a lab staff, a, a revenue cycle management person. So we're we're kind of. We're we're being very thoughtful about that reimbursement story and how we tell that as well, which is uh, which is critical in this in this time and age, especially where some of the value assessment committees have slowed down.
0: And when you talk about the sales rep and needing, um, you're you're looking for pretty sharp people that also have some relationships that you can work from, which is critical, especially with like a, a newer technology. But do you also find that the skill set might be a little bit different? I mean, not only do you need a rock star, but you need somebody that can actually set up, ai don't know if, whether you use Zoom, but a virtual call. Let's just say set up a virtual call, have the skills to be able to coordinate one or two other people that might participate in that call. Have you found that the, that the profile of the individuals changed a little bit?
1: Yeah, you know, yes. Um, I think there's two elements to that. One is the technology to enable it. So, I mean, I think almost anyone can set up a Zoom call now. I mean, yep. that, that's become common. I mean, you know, back, rewind 12 months, that wasn't the case. But I think now that the kind of fundamentals are in place in most areas. What's missing is how do you use it strategically? When do you use it? How long is it? How, what are the right touch points? That we're, we're working on. And in fact, we're talking about bringing on specific skill sets that only focus on that. So think of it as, you know, in your old world, you'd have a PR person, or you might have a social media person. Well, we're entering a world where you need to have a virtual person. I don't know what the right title is, but you need somebody who is on top of the technologies, knows the right cadence, knows how to structure the meetings, how to how to hit record and not forget, like whatever. I and mean, that's just one example, but that is a skill set that we we want to bring to bear. Um, I don't think most of the reps have depth in that area, but they're 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 comfortable you know, working it. And then the other element is is the technology. So it's beyond Zoom. There's so many other tools. How do you integrate it? I mean, the one that's top of mind because we're talking about this week is how do you integrate that into the CRM system? How do you have it so that your CRM system is is driving that virtual experience as much as um, just being, again, kind of proactive versus reactive. How do you get your CRM system integrated with the virtual element of engaging with customers? So, you know, in the old day, you'd send out an email, some automated triggered email. Well, now we've got to bring in how do we virtually meet with folks and and, and how do we have all the rules and processes and, and requirements in place such that that can happen.
0: Right. So using the CRM system and perhaps some marketing automation tools to help drive okay. people into the top of the funnel and keep getting the right kind of message to them until a sales rep can take over? Is that what you're talking about?
1: Um, a little bit, but even farther down the funnel. I mean, even after they're using the tool and, uh. and keeping it top of mind, it's, it's, it's engaging with the physicians that follow up. I mean, when they do the procedure, What's happening with that patient 30 days, 60 days, 90 days later? So it, it, it's a lot more than that. It's also refreshing clinical data. You know, we're out building case studies and images and clinical studies. How do we bring that back to bear with the clinicians who, let's say, I'm making this up, let's say a clinician has pigeonholed the technology into using it in one of five patients. Well, maybe that doesn't make sense. Maybe they should be using it in four or five patients. Or let's say they're really comfortable with it in liver. And we and we know it can work in other areas: renal, bone cancer, prostate cancer. We have indications to use it elsewhere. So, it's it's kind of it's really up and down the funnel. And our, I would argue it's actually more back end loaded than front end loaded. It's more around once we've got that initial communication with the clinician, how do we use those virtual tools to stay engaged over time?
0: So, you're saying that you might use the uh, the CRM system to create as one of the people I interviewed a month or two ago, create a journey. So you know that Dr. Jones is using it for liver metastases, okay? But he's been reluctant to use it in a couple other applications. So the system knows that he uses it in liver metastases. And because of that, and and the system knows he's reluctant in the others. So now he's going to get a stream of Messages maybe once a week or once every couple of weeks that say, "Hey, did you know about this?" So here's something that's interesting, right? Know, whatever.
1: Yeah, and another example would be: there's four interventional radiologists at a hospital, and one's doing all livers, and the other's doing all prostate. Get a lunch and learn. Bring the two of them together. Say, "Hey, Doctor Smith is doing liver metastases, and you're doing prostate." Collaborate. Talk about why why the why the smart pressure enabled drug delivery makes sense or can we use it in different platforms, different anatomy? So it's really kind of fostering that collaboration in some in some respects. We're not there today, and this yeah. is where we're headed. But yeah, the goal is to really use the data to understand the behaviors, and then use this virtual engagement to help kind of shape and drive adoption. At the end of the day, we believe the technology is better for the patient, and we want we want to make sure that the physicians are aware of the data we have and the opportunity to use the technology and in a broad set, start with the bullseye, start with the patient that, you you know, is the obvious kind of low hanging fruit. And then how do you broaden beyond that?
0: So to support that, then marketing has a pretty big role here.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, for us, because we're kind of this drug and device company, you know, as you know, pharma is more heavily invested in marketing. Traditionally, um, we're moving in that direction. We see that we're trying to take the best of both worlds. We're trying to take the best, of what pharma does from a marketing standpoint and the best of what MedTech does and kind of blend them together. Um, it, it's a big priority for us because of, well, one, because we're headed down a path of eventually getting into immuno-oncology. So again, we're not, old, we have to be, have one eye to the future of we're not just a device company with a platform smart valve. We're also looking at how do we build that foundation so that we can be successful in the immuno-oncology space.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I just think that whole area is really fascinating because as you've probably heard me say before, med tech is terrible traditionally, especially small to medium sized companies, terrible at marketing and COVID, you know, really made that quite obvious.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: So, um, okay. So let's, let's talk about this platform, this, um, so it's called a PEDD, a pressure enabled drug delivery, uh, device that's the device part of it. And then we've, talked about being a combination platform, because when you and I first talked, I said combination device, and you said, no, it's not a device, it's a platform, which is really unusual and rare and interesting, and then then I understood it after we talked about it for a second, so um, talk about the difference between a combination platform and a combination device.
1: Yeah. So when I think of a combination device, it's a drug and a device that are inextricably linked together somehow, right? Like let's use a drug-eluting stent. The drug is bound to and coded onto that stent. There's no permutations, right? This drug, this stent, they go together. To me, that's a combination device. We have a very different approach. We have a platform device technology and a whole world of... Therapeutics that can be used with this drug, with or sorry, with this device platform, and then umbrella on top of that is experience and data to drive that. So you can think of our our platform as somewhat agnostic to the therapy. It's not in, in actuality, but you can almost think of it as that kind of on day one, it's agnostic. So you can put, in our case, you can put uh, chemoembolics, radioembolics, you know, bland beads. And we're moving to a world where you can put cellular therapies, immuno-oncology therapies, um, even traditional chemotherapies through the same platform. Now, how it works over time, you know, the the therapies behave differently and there's an understanding of how to optimize that. But we are very much not extricably linked to one particular therapy. And that's really how I separated in my mind is we've got, I mean, we're, 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 I hate to make this analogy, but we're more like a syringe, right? You can put anything through a a given syringe. We're kind of a much, much better version of that. And we're, we're somewhat agnostic to that therapy. Now there are bounds on it. There are certain things that we don't think will work well. And we haven't tested against it, but this platform of, we can put this catheter with the smart valve in local regionally. We can put it right near the tumor. We can modulate that pressure with the pressure enabled drug delivery with the smart valve and with that and understanding how that works and the, and the physiologic response to it and, and the, the pressure modulation, we can effectively deliver any one of those theri- therapies through the platform. So that's kind of the way I think about it. I'm not saying I didn't really see that anywhere else. I've kind of formulated that thought in my own mind. But when, when we look at it of, of the flexibility and the ways that the, that our smart valve can be used, it looks more like a platform than it does a, a combination device. And, and, and I think that's how we want to be treated both from a regulatory standpoint, from a customer standpoint, and also internally. We don't necessarily want to say this is linked to this and there's no other no other paths or options.
0: So one thing I want the listeners to understand is that Trisalis currently has on the market these uh, pressure-enabled drug delivery smart valve products, and they're selling them. They're selling yeah. them. And like you said, they're a sort of agnostic people can – Use this um, technology for you know delivering whatever they want to deliver that's uh, I guess standard of care at the moment. On the other side, which is really exciting for Trisalis, is you have your own pipeline of drugs mm-hmm. that you're go- that you're bringing to bear that will end up being delivered by the technology that's currently on the market, the medical device technology.
1: Right, right. Yeah. So we have a strategic hypothesis that there are a number of drugs that failed, not because the drug didn't work, but because they were delivered inappropriately. So if you think of systemic delivery, IV bag, needle, you're treating a single tumor in a a liver, but guess where that drug is going? Through the entire body. Now, there are lots of mechanisms to make a propensity for that drug to migrate to and treat that tumor. And that's fine, but it still is a systemic delivery. We kind of take the opposite approach, which is put the drug right where it needs to be and that's that's really what we do it's local regional is going right up against the tumor right beside the vascular bed of the tumor and delivering the therapy through that means and so that's you know when we think about the big difference and so why does that matter so one in order to get efficacy a lot of cases you have to jack up the dose so that you end up with safety issues and side effects right so we might be you know, in some cases we might get the same effect with a better safety profile and lower lower side effects. The other side is we can't get the dose high enough so we don't get efficacy before we before we hit, you know, safety issues. In that case, we can lower the dose significantly, put it right up against the tumor and get efficacy again without having the side effects and the complications. So we're enabled to kind of come at it from two different areas, either lower the dose and put it where it needs to be or keep the dose the same or, or lower the dose and, and not have to have the systemic issues, not have to have all the systemic effects. So it's, it's, I mean, it's one of those things where it just intuitively makes sense, right? You build it, you, you have a therapeutic to treat a tumor. Why not put it right in front of the tumor? And, and what, through our tool, through our pressure enabled drug delivery, we're over to, we're able to overcome the forces that are resisting the drug uptake in tumors. If you actually tease, tease out what's going on in a tumor, it's a crazy environment. It's, it's hypoxic, it's high pressure. You've got this disorganized kind of m- jumbled mess of vascular. It's, it's hard to get the drug there. And the data supports that when we can get up close and, and really use modulated pressure, we can get the drug, not only to the tumor, but we can get it to get inside the tumor, across the, Endoluminal bear the endoluminal um, a barrier between the vascular and the tumor, and get that therapy right into the tumor where it needs to where it needs to go to work.
0: And I didn't realize that the tumor. I mean, I've always known known that tumors are difficult to attack. I thought it was more of an external surface related issue until I went to your website and I studied everything on the website. You know, preparing for this. And it, it just makes sense. I just didn't realize the tumor was such a difficult environment from the inside out even. And that's where the pressure-enabled approach yeah. makes a di- big difference because where other people have tried to take um, treatments directly to the tumor without pressure enablement, um, they have not done so well. But with pressure enablement, you like you said, you overcome some of these internal barriers of moving the the therapy into the tumor where it can actually attack it.
1: Yeah, it's a physics problem. It, yeah. it, it's a physics problem of trying to push, push water uphill, right? I mean right. you have to be able to have the pressure to overcome it or else it doesn't work. And it doesn't it doesn't matter what convection you have or, or what propensity you build at a molecular level. If you can't overcome the physical phys- the physics of it, it it kind of doesn't matter. And this is not new knowledge. This is the other thing like there are papers that are back in the 50s. That talk about the tumor microenvironment and how how pressure is high and how it's it's a tough environment. It's just taken a while for again. I what I talked about earlier is the pharma live in the silo and the med tech live in the silo. Yeah. And unfortunately with that, no one put it together and it's taken a while. But I think we've really we're starting to build that understanding of what you need to do to cross that tumor environment. And uh, and it's exciting.
0: Uh, it really is. It's really, really cool. I mean, when I was going through the the website and, and also the conversations you and I had, and I started to really put all this stuff, stuff together, you realize uh, how powerful this can all be. So it's very, very exciting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: And so having been through, you know, where you've been through so far in your previous C-suite experiences, and now this experience at Trice House, you know, you're working your way through the challenges of COVID also, new team members, um, you know, this kind of technology, any particular kernels of advice that you would give to other people that are, you know, facing similar challenges?
1: Yeah, so if I think about it from a, in the world we live in, where you're bringing pharma and device, traditional pharma and device together, I think it's a recognition that it's a lot harder to do but the benefits far outweigh the cost. You know, if it's twice as hard to do, the benefits are five times greater. So I think, I think anyone getting into this realm needs needs to appreciate that it is hard, but it's worth it. I guess, I guess that's kind of the, the one thing. It's also um, hard to do at a small scale. Like this is really hard to do in a garage, um, you know, part-time. This is, these are big hairy issues that we're tackling and, and it's, 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 it's next to impossible to do on a, on a small scale. So from a, from an industry standpoint, I'm unbelievably excited about where we are. I, I, you know, I hope lots of people look at how do we, how do we use device and drugs to treat all kinds of problems? I mean, the list of things that are ailments beyond oncology, I mean, they're just, to me, I, you know, I look at the top 50 procedures in the United States and I get excited that there are 45 of those that it's not that hard to imagine that you can bring the therapeutic and the device world together to solve some problems. So I, I think there's just a ton of opportunity. Um, I don't know if that's kind of what your question was leading kind of heading down, but that, that to me is we need to get there as an industry. We need to collaborate better with our with our colleagues on the other side of the table and on the pharma side. And and as an industry, I think we're gonna be well, well served to do that specifically in terms of the C-suite. Um, I think it's just, I mean, for me, it's just keep the patient in mind. How do we treat the most patients? You know, I always use the the mother, sister, daughter, grandmother test. I don't know why I picked those four, but <laughs> we really we really need to be thinking about what would we want one of those people to do and have available. And, uh, and, and I look at it as leverage. Like I said earlier, like the way I'm going to treat the most grandmothers, the most sisters, the most moms is we need to get out there and make a big difference and, and give the physicians, the physicians are, I mean, they're the ones We're we're, we are assistants to them, right? We are providing them tools. Um, we're giving them the pen to write the novel, but without the pen, they can't write the novel. And that's really the way I think about it. I want to give these physicians the best tools they can to teach those patients. And um, at least in this industry, I hope we all hop out of bed in the morning to do that. And I really think that's what makes you, happy in the C-suite. And like I talked about earlier, compartmentalizing the challenges and stuff. One way to do that is to say, let's not forget why we're here. Let's not forget why we're doing this. And so, um, yeah, that's, I think if you're not answering that question, maybe there's there, I will tell you, there are lots of other industries that are easier than this one. <laughs> like <laughs> don't be in the C-suite of medtech or pharma or this, if you're not in it for the patients, cause it's harder than others. And I know that, I mean, I know lots of people in other areas, um, I don't want to. I don't want to diminish it. There are are very different challenges, but this is a hard world to live in, and uh, and I think we've got to kind of keep that patient in mind to to get not to get through, but to keep us driving in the right direction.
0: Stay motivated.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Well, great. Well, we're pretty close to uh, wrapping up here. One thing I thought I would do is, I don't know, uh, Patrick, if you can hear me, if um, you had a question or anything you wanted to ask, I can click the allow to talk button. There you are. There's your face. And you're muted. Uh, Do I have to unmute? No, now you're unmuted.
2: Hey, Patrick. Hey, Trevor. Thanks so much. Really a lot of great information, a lot of great tactical information uh, throughout the the conversation. The question I want to get back to is something that you talked about in terms of leadership. Uh And you spoke about confidence and confidence in yourself, but also confidence in the message that goes out. And as you're moving up in an organization, your um, attitude really gets noticed by a lot of people. But sometimes we have some difficult circumstances to uh, to deal with. So I'd like you to just kind of uh, talk a little bit about uh, the challenge of having confidence, but also being transparent when you've got some bad news to deliver.
1: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. I've delivered plenty of bad news. Um, <laughs> I... I always err on the side of transparency and, and the reason I do is I truly believe people figure it out regardless. So why not tell it themselves? I mean, it's not like there's necessarily this ethical high road or that. I just think that everyone's no secret. I don't know about you, but there's very few secrets that are ever kept in a small company. You know, in a big, huge multinational, yeah, you can keep secrets in certain dark corners of the company. But when you're less than a hundred or a couple hundred people, those there's those seek, I mean. They always get out, especially the juicy bad ones. Um, and I always think I'd rather deliver that than somebody say, "Why didn't I hear that from Trevor? Why did I? Why did I hear that from Bob, not from Trevor?" Um, so it's it's kind of more of a pragmatic approach. I always err on the side of transparency. I'm maybe not. I don't know if you guys have followed the Netflix kind of cultural revolution that's gone on. A lot of stuff they've done at Netflix. I love some of that, but I also think they've taken some of the transparency to the, maybe the too extreme. So I think there's a balance. I mean, certainly transparency that, um, you know, jeopardizes someone's comfort or safety or anything like that Uh, in a company, you need to be careful, but I'm, I generally am, I I generally err on the side of more rather than less. Great. Thank Uh, you. And and the other thing is, and this took me a while, this, you know, I don't think anybody is born with this or comes into their career with this is, but I look back and I'm not deliberate, I should be more deliberate on this, but I look back at those hard decisions and those delivering bad news or those big game-changing uh, decisions through my career, and it's never as bad as you make it out to be when you're thinking about it, right? Like you dream it up and you dream up worst of worst of worst case, and it never ends up that way. And so I think about the time and the energy and the distraction I spent worrying about worst case, and it just almost never plays out that way. We, I think whether it's human nature or something, We assume the worst in a lot of cases. And I actually can't think of a single example of my career where that's been the case. So I I remind myself of that when I'm coming up to these tough decisions, saying, remember those last six you had to make? (laughs) Well, guess what? All six turned out better than you thought. So let's maybe like frame the discussion around an expected outcome, not a worst case. You don't want to, you don't want to be over too optimistic because then you're not prepared, but being pragmatic and, and, uh, and, I don't game play game playing in your head as to where, what the outcomes could be and bounding those I think is, is helpful.
0: I have another question for you. Do you have any business heroes, people that you sort of keep track of, or you, you like to read about or have, have philosophies that have sort of motivated you?
1: Yeah, I think if I had to put one at the top, it would be Bill George from Medtronic Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, he predated me, so he wasn't the CEO when I was there. But I've read all his stuff. I think he is the he. Yeah, you know, I don't know if you know kind of his his um, his philosophy, but it's very much about authenticity and kind of a, a moral a, a, a compass by which you you run your business. I think what I saw at Medtronic across tens of thousands of people was the manifestation of Bill George's vision and, and insight, and I. I really like his perspective on and and I follow him religiously on LinkedIn and I think he's just he's really really good. In fact today he had a LinkedIn post talking about Jeff Immelt from GE and was kind of critical of him because he didn't follow this moral compass and kind of take ownership for some of the things that happened at GE. So I would put I would put Bill George at the top. I mean, if you ever asked that question, you know, if you can have dinner with anybody alive, would it be? And he often comes out as kind of the one person, one person I would want to have. I've, I met him briefly and I've seen him talk and he just exudes kind of all of the, all of the traits that I think are most important in a leader. And I think it should be across industry. I feel fortunate that I worked at the company that, that he, that, uh, that he was a big, uh, a big driver of, but um, yeah, he's, he's somebody that, that stood out. And then the other is, is I'm going to talk about a collection of leaders. So this isn't an individual, but I don't know if you've ever read the book, Small Giants. No. Um, I was going to ask you about a book. So this is Yeah, great. yeah. Perfect. So it's a book. And now that I say it, I'm not sure the title's right. It's got a fishbowl on the cover. Anyway, it's a story about, all, I think, 10 or 12 companies that all chose not to scale and grow for the sake of growth. And I found it fascinating. It was probably one of the most influential books I've read about talking about this this role of companies isn't to just mindlessly grow forever. Um, now, I, I sound like I'm at odds earlier where I said we want to treat as many patients. I get that. But I just really, I really admire people who run businesses for an intent other than maximizing growth and profit. I mean, it, those kind of are synonymous. But you read the stories of these people, like the one that stands out was Anchorstein Brewery. Like, you know, he decided not to grow when he could have. And the reasons why he didn't do that, why he chose not to grow made a lot of sense. So I always look back on it just, again, it's kind of in the same light as Bill George, but make decisions that are right for the stakeholders, be it the employees, be it the customers, be it the leadership, whoever. And it's not always about growth and it's not always about kind of unbridled, you know, expansion. Um Uh, The, the, uh, the collection, all of the people that were in that book always stood out to me as people that I, that I admired and, and, uh, would love to emulate in terms of just thought process, being true to themselves and not falling into the group think and, uh, being very deliberate. So that, that would be probably one of the books that I, that I would put on that, uh, on that list.
2: I got a reading
0: assignment then.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Pat, any Patrick, any other questions?
2: No, I think uh, it's been a really, really nice conversation. I've really Great. enjoyed kind of the the mix of tactical um, uh, programs that you're working on and some of the strategic things. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you.
0: Oh. And thanks for attending, Patrick. So yeah. with that, I think we'll wrap it up. Do you have any final pieces of advice, Trevor? Or
1: No. Nope. Let's just, as an industry, go treat lots of people.
0: <laughs> Let's go t- take care of a lot of patients. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for, um, being with me today on this uh, podcast and videocast. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, you and I've already talked twice, but every time we talk more and more interesting stuff co- keeps coming out. So this was really, um, uh, interesting and motivating, inspiring, and I'm sure the audience will feel the same way.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for, uh, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. And I, uh, I uh, will welcome kind of continued conversations. I suspect this won't be the last.
0: Oh, it won't. And I always reserve the right with somebody like you in your situation to talk to you in another year and see
1: where you are. (laughs) Absolutely. And then call me on it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay.
0: Thank you very much. Well, that was great. Personally, I find these interviews inspiring. Always keep the patient foremost in mind. This is easy to get away from when leading from the C-suite with all the distractions it might have. Trevor has his priorities clearly laid out. It is not only a priority, but a critical value. Even if you're not in the C-suite, you can work according to key business and personal values. Have you and your company reorganized your marketing and sales to respond to the environment the pandemic has created? If not, it is never too late. You could simply start with a sales process, but you will need marketing support. In the show notes, you will find links to Trevor's LinkedIn profile and the TriSalus website. You will also find some links to me. Thanks again for listening in on our conversation today. If you like this podcast, please rate it, recommend it, and or subscribe. Now go when you're weak.